0: my first draft is write it as fast as you can because I'm always terrified I'm going to lose the story so within that it's making those kinds of discoveries and and saying to myself oh to make this make sense I now need to pull in this storyline and and the storyline with Alex prior to the second world war was that happened right at the end even though it's at the start of the book so it's a very organic and chaotic writing process it stresses me out no end that that's how I write because I'm a very organized person in every other area of my life but I've come to terms with the fact that my creativity thrives in chaos and I just have to take a deep breath and let it thrive in the environment it's chosen.
1: <laughs> Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us.
2: And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the newest episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. We are so excited this week to speak with an author whose latest book offers a sumptuous, Yes, I said sumptuous combination of heroism, fashion and espionage all rolled into a powerful story that Bookpage has called a remarkable novel that is both daring and compelling. It's a spellbinding portrait of a woman who knows how to survive and how to win a wonderfully human and utterly gripping work of historical fiction. I am Ron Block. Natasha Lester is the New York Times bestselling author of The Paris Seamstress, The Paris Orphan, and The Riviera House, and more. She worked as a marketing executive for L'Oreal, managing the Maybelline brand before returning to university to study creative writing. She completed a Master of Creative Arts and changed the course of her career. When she's not writing, she loves collecting vintage fashion, Dior is a favorite, Practicing the art of fashion illustration, learning about fashion history, and traveling to Paris. Lots of Paris. We need to ask about that. Natasha lives with her husband and three children in Perth, Western Australia. Welcome, Natasha. I'm so glad to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much. It's so great to be here, Ron. And I promise I'll try and stay awake, even though it's after midnight my time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And I doubly appreciate you being here because I know how late it is. It's already in the future. It's already Tuesday (laughs) uh, Monday.
0: It could be quite fun (laughs) to see what I do, how I do speak at uh, post midnight. I think we'll have a lot of fun anyway.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, luckily we had it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So anyway, congratulations on the publication of the three, lives, Alix St-Pierre. Tell our listeners what the book is about.
0: Of course. So Alix is an orphan, a schoolgirl, a spy, and then she becomes the director of publicity for the just launching House of Christian Dior in Paris in late 1946. But when she gets to Paris, she realizes that somebody is trying to work out what she did during the war, which is something she's sworn never to speak about so she finds herself with two jobs trying to convince the press to come to the first showing from this new and unheard of designer Christian Dior and also trying to find out who is trying to find her before they do that's
2: perfectly said so one of the things we like to ask is that's the story and that's the plot but what is the book really about
0: So it's largely about women post-war and the huge change that they suffered through after being so invaluable and working so hard and holding such positions of responsibility during the war and how they were then kind of forced back to the home really in that post-war period. So that was really what got me into the book. It's also about the partisan war in Italy, in Europe, where – We've got a lot of focus on France during the Second World War, but there was also the occupation of Italy going on, and I wanted to explore that as well. So lots of good stuff in there, hopefully. And fashion, of course there's fashion.
2: <laughs> there's Of course there's fashion. So how did you become connected to this story? Were you interested in fashion and in the war, and then was there a linchpin that pulled the two together for you?
0: I always find that my book ideas come from two or three seemingly disconnected ideas suddenly joining in my head and going, yes, we can join together to make a story. And I'm like, really? Okay. (laughs) I'd like to see how that works. So with this one, I had wanted to write about women post-war since I wrote a book called The Paris Orphan back in 2019, which was about a an amazing war photojournalist called Lee Miller who suffered terribly after the war. You know, she was taking these incredible photographs of women in wartime and then was basically forced to become Vogue's social reporter after the war. And uh, the the injustice of that really got to me and I couldn't fit that part of the story into that book. So I kind of parked it until I had something else to hang that story off. And then I was reading in a book about a woman called Mary Bancroft who worked as a spy in neutral Switzerland during the Second World War. And I was like, wait, what? There were spies in Switzerland during the war. That was a neutral country. How did that work? And one of them was a woman. Okay. I need to find out more about that. So that was the second thing. And the third thing was, I just think the story of the birth of the house of Dior is so fascinating. And I've always wanted to write about that part of history too. And so then I kind of joined those dots of, okay, well, the birth of Dior was post-war. I've got this post-war women idea and okay, well, there's Mary Bancroft. Um, I can pull her into that somehow too. So it was that clash of those three things spiking in my head and going, there's a book there, find it.
2: (laughs) And find it you did. (laughs) Uh, There's a lot, of of course, as we mentioned, there's a lot about fashion in there. What is your background with fashion? Why, why are you so enamored with it?
0: I think it's, began when I started working in fact it began really in the late 1990s when I lived in London for a couple of years and There used to be these amazing bricks-and-mortar vintage fashion stores in London, mostly vintage um, stores have moved online these days. There was one in particular on the King's Road in Chelsea called Steinberg and Tolkien, and I would go into this store every weekend. The woman who owned the store must have just despaired of me because I would go in and browse and I would never buy anything because I couldn't afford anything. But her (laughs) collection spanned back to the 1910s beautiful 1930s gowns, 1940s, 50s, 60s. And it was like, you know, in a, you go to a museum and you look at fashion and it's behind a a vitrine or, or a glass case. Whereas here were all these museum worthy pieces that you could reach out and touch if you so dared, which I did not often dare to do in case I tore something. So I think it was there. And at the same time, I had the V&A Museum right there as well, which has one of the most amazing fashion collections in the world. So, I spent a lot of time going there, the Fabulous Costume Museum in Bath. So, living in London, living in the UK, being surrounded by so much fashion history inspired me to start buying my own fashion history books and becoming something of a bit of an amateur fashion historian, I guess you could say. And then I kind of worked in the marketing cosmetics field for a while, which is, quite closely aligned to fashion we worked a lot with magazines of course so that also played into it and then when I started writing it just seemed to make sense to me that if I wrote about something I loved then hopefully the reader would feel that love and they would really therefore enjoy the story more so I began to incorporate you know real dresses into my stories and then from there I thought right let's not just have dresses let's have a whole fashion storyline in there
2: that's wonderful. And, and I read in your author note how the dresses that you describe in the book are actually based on real the real dresses, right?
0: Yeah. Well, when you're writing about Dior, he's got so many incredible gowns that there's no way you need to make anything up. You know, there's one in particular, Alex wears it to a, a ball, a rather spectacular ball, and I have actually moved this gown in history by a few years because it was actually a little bit later than I have it in the book, but it, it's made out of this incredible fabric called velour sábra, which um, is like this double layer of, of duchess satin. And a, a seamstress takes a little sword and cuts away the topmost threads so that the fabric underneath that shows through and it's such exquisite detailed painstaking work that they can only complete a few centimeters every day and when I read the story behind that dress I thought wow that is just amazing to have that dedication that skill that craftsmanship going into the fabric alone and then the fabric to be made into the dress so when you read that sort of thing you think I have to include those sorts of dresses in the story so I did.
2: And you did. Yeah, I, you could you could just tell not only your passion for it, but also uh, your just your descriptions of them just come to life. So I really applaud that for sure. Let's talk about Dior a little bit more. So you, you mentioned that it, you were kind of fascinated with that, but there's a little bit of history there. And this the book takes place when he's just really up and coming. Can you talk about the reality of what the company was like for him that you found out and, and what you did to alter the story maybe a little bit?
0: Sure. So. One of the things that I loved about Dior was when I was doing the research, I read his autobiography um, and he's such an amazing raconteur and he had all these amazing anecdotes throughout this book and I thought, wow, there's so much in here. I'm so lucky to have such rich source material to be building the book around. So, for example, one of the first stories he recounts is the fact that He was approached by one of the biggest textile manufacturers in France to start his own couture house and Dior was quite a shy person. He didn't have a lot of self-confidence and he initially refused the offer. And then he went to visit his fortune teller who said to him, you know, you will never get another opportunity like this in your lifetime. And I can see that in your future, you are going to be famous and it has everything to do with women. And Dior suddenly thought, oh gosh, what if that couture house idea was the Famous thing about women that I'm meant to be doing. So he rushed back to this financial backer and said, "No, I will start my couture house." and And so within two months, he had two months to find a premise renovate the premise make his first collection and then get it out in into the salon and so over that time period it was chaos as you can imagine and again he recounts this in his book and I had to use all of this great detail in the in the book because they're basically the night before the show you'd think everything would be done but no he's got mannequins (laughs) fainting on him while he's trying to remake the dresses they're fainting He, he recounts how he's holding a pair of falsies in his hand and the mannequins kind of slumped to the floor and dead faint because they've been working so hard and and how they're hammering down the carpet on the morning of the show. So the press is all queued up outside. You've got workmen in there painting the walls, hammering down the carpet, hanging the chandeliers. And you would think that with all of these things going on the show, couldn't possibly have been a success. The first mannequin that went right. out tripped and fell over. Oh, no. <laughs> but nobody noticed any of that because the clothes were so spectacular that they made history.
2: Wow. Okay. So before we bring Christy in, I wanna ask about there's a, a Hollywood star who is reported in the book to have worn an early version of his dress. Was is that based on a true story?
0: Yes. Yeah, so Rita Hayworth wore one of Dior's very early gowns to the premiere of the Paris premiere of her movie Gilda in 1947, and when I found that out, and that Dior was the very first couturier to forge these links between fashion and Hollywood, again, I had to put that into the book too. As I say, there was so much incredible factual detail that it made my life as a novelist a dream.
2: <laughs> good, good, good. Okay, we're going to stop for a minute. Hey, Christy.
1: Hi, Natasha. Christy Woodson Harvey here. So excited to be here and get to talk to you about this incredible book. I think really something that stood out to me is you did such an amazing job of bringing Alix to life so memorably. So can you tell us what were some of your favorite parts about creating that character and then what was challenging about it? I think
0: one of my favorite parts of creating the character were bringing to life that Sense that women in that post-war period had so much to offer yet weren't necessarily allowed to offer it in that post-war kind of society. And I had so many women talk to me about the frustration they felt in relation to that and this idea that they're you know, think of all the things that weren't invented because women were kind of pushed back into the home after the Second World War. Think about all of the incredible things that could have been made, the wonderful innovations that could have happened if these women had been allowed to continue in these roles that they had held during the war. And I love that idea of the possibility that women held within them that maybe didn't happen because of the way society was structured at the time. So I wanted to create with Alex someone who had all of that possibility in her and you could kind of just feel it simmering below the surface and she was constantly battling against being allowed to let that out and knowing that society didn't want her to do that. So the challenge in doing that with her was to not to bring my own modern sensibility into 1947, where which is something that you know we're always playing with when we're writing historical fiction is to make sure that our characters are not an- anachronistic and their worldview is true to the time. So whilst they might be kind of right at the outer edge of that worldview, they're still very much operating within that worldview even though they might be trying to push some boundaries. So that was my challenge because I just wanted to get in there and get irate with everybody in the world at that time and shake them all and say, why aren't women allowed to wear trousers in public places in 1947 and things like that? <laughs> and why aren't women allowed to have bank accounts? In 19- you know, it wasn't until the 1970s that women could have bank accounts and things like that. So pulling down my frustration and just getting into the story was probably my personal challenge in writing Alexa's character.
1: Well, you did that so well. That is such a good point. And that's something that I'm not sure I'm embarrassed to say. I'm not sure I've ever really considered that. You know, what would these women have done had they not gone back into the home? So that is a really fascinating viewpoint and just an excellent point, something we should all really be thinking about. Keep
2: it accurate with the time. So let's talk about the structure of the book and the time periods. You have three time periods, before, during, and after the war. Can you talk about putting that together in the structure of the book and what your process was?
0: Well, when I began writing the book, I actually really intended it to be all set in that post-war period, so I didn't intend to have three storylines. And, I mean, I'm not a planner, and so I'm used to things coming up and surprising me. And I was quite surprised by a lot of the things that happened in this book because as soon as I began writing that post-war storyline and trying to show how women were kind of, you know, forced back to the home in the post-war period, I suddenly realised that it wasn't as powerful without the wartime period because to appreciate how big a change that was, you needed to see what kind of roles women were actually, you know, permitted to do in the wartime period. So you could see, okay, the deep injustice of, you know, being a spy for the American government in the Second World War, and to then suddenly being told, you know, your job now was to cook roast units for your husband. So, to set up that juxtaposition and to make the reader see how that worked, I then realised I needed to write a wartime storyline, and so that was where kind of the Mary Bancroft idea came from, and when I started to unpick that and realised there was a link between what Mary was doing in Switzerland for the American government with the Italian partisans, I wanted to tell that story. So... For me, it's really not a planned, structured approach to pulling the structure together. My first draft is write it as fast as you can because I'm always terrified I'm going to lose the story. So, within that, it's making those kinds of discoveries and and saying to myself, oh, to make this make sense, I now need to pull in this storyline. And and the storyline with Alex prior to the Second World War, was that happened right at the end, even though it's at the start of the book. So okay. it's a very organic and chaotic writing process. It stresses me out no end that that's how I write because I'm a very organised person in every other area of my life. But I've come to terms with the fact that my creativity thrives in chaos and I just have to take a deep breath and let it thrive in the environment it's chosen.
2: <laughs> that's awesome.
1: You know, I... That's funny to hear you say that because I am also a pantser and I say the same thing all the time that I feel like when I am writing a first draft, I am like running a race because I'm so afraid I'm holding. I'm just like you, like I'll have multiple viewpoints and, and multiple time periods and I'm just like holding all these things in my brain, but I could never actually sit down and outline them. It like just doesn't work that way but the same I think all the time I'm like if I could just outline I would not be so stressed
0: out (laughs) I know but then someone said to me and I think this is really true as well that if you already know the whole story up front then you don't need to write it because you the magic is gone and I thought oh okay that is so true and I'm actually I love the magic so I'm just gonna have to put up with the way it works for me and probably you're the same
1: (laughs) yeah I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm like, that's what keeps me coming back to the page because I don't know exactly what's going to happen next. And it's almost like being a reader in that way that you're coming to this page fresh and you think,
0: Ooh, this oh, is absolutely. So and I always say, you know, the, the story unfolds for me page by page exactly the same way it does for the writer. So I want to know what's going to happen next. So I have to turn up the next day and write it to find out, to find out how it's going to end. I never know how it's going to end. So that's also the reason why I'm typing really fast because I don't want that end to run away from me and get lost somewhere.
1: Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, the research for this book, Natasha, oh my goodness, it was incredible and so well done, but I think it seems like it would have been really fun to do. So from diving into the life of Dior to researching women's roles during the war, you had a lot on your plate with this one. So tell us how you went about this research and tell us
0: about the fortune teller. I know.
2: I know. I want to know. I want to (laughs) know.
0: So, the research was really interesting. And this is another thing. I think so much of writing is what your gut tells you to do and not ignoring your gut. Mm -hmm. And so, for me, I was actually going to Europe at the end of 2018, early 2019 for a family holiday in a, my father-in-law loves an extravagant gesture and he was turning 80 and he decided to take his large family of 30 people to France to stay in a chateau for a week to celebrate his 80th birthday. So wow. I was like, yeah, I can, I can go along with and that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, about two weeks, um, it was probably about three weeks before we left, I said to my husband, I need to add on an extra week before we go to France because I have to go to switzerland i need to take a train from one side of switzerland to the other and then i need to get in a car and i need to drive over the swiss italian alps and down through the north of italy and my husband said to me why do you need to do that and i said i don't know but i just do (laughs) and my husband knows when natasha's gut is saying something you don't argue with the gut you just go nod and go, yeah, okay, we'll do that. And of course it wasn't particularly hard to persuade him that we had to go to Switzerland and Italy either. I've got to say. So, right. yeah, <laughs> yeah, darn. So, <laughs> I know. Yeah, I was <laughs> so, totally on board with that. So it was winter. We caught this train from across Switzerland. It was snowing the whole time. It was just magical, divine fairyland. And then we drove down over the, the Alps and into Northern Italy. And I took hundreds of photos through that whole time, not knowing why, just I had to do this for some reason. So I did all of that, and and this was when I still had the idea for The Three Lives of Alex and pierre being a post-war story, not a wartime story as well. And then when I got home and began writing it, as I say, I discovered I needed to write the wartime side of things as well, and that's when I realised, oh, my goodness, that was why I needed to go to Switzerland and Italy because that's where part of the story is set, and all those photos now I can recreate Alex's kind of journey across that Swiss-Italian border at night, et cetera, and through Switzerland. So it was a really, I just, you know, the gut is so important. Never ignore the gut. That's probably my number one writing tip, I I would say. So there was that kind of location research. There was really super fun research going through the Dior archives and looking at all of those photographs of the house of Christian Dior in those early couple of months when it is under construction, when Dior is doing those early fittings on the mannequins with his group of women around him. And that was where I saw the incredible photo of Dior sitting on the staircase at the couture house, surrounded by his senior management team. And 11 of the people around him are women and only one of them is a man. And I was like, wow, I had no idea that the top 12 out of the top 12 senior positions at the house of Dior, 11 of them were held by women. And nobody knows that everyone thinks Dior is Dior, but no, there were these amazing women making that Couture house a success. And so again, that was something else. I thought I want to write that into the story too, and show how these women were instrumental in making him the icon that he is today. So lots of amazing archival photographs from Dior that really helped to me construct that book. And as I said before, Dior's autobiography was incredible. Another great thing I got out of that book was, and I use this scene in the book uh, in the Cabine, which is where the the mannequins get ready for the show, they have a a railing, a, a banister at the top of the cabine because some of the dresses have got such big skirts, they can't physically fit them down the staircase. And so the seamstresses will come out of their workroom or their atelier onto this landing. And then the mannequin would be standing in the cabine on the ground floor and they would drop the dress from the railing down onto the waiting mannequin below. I thought, oh, my goodness, imagine standing there and having this Dior dress just drop down from the heavens onto you. So as soon as I read that, I thought, right, that is what is going to happen to Alix. The night she goes to her ball, her gown is going to descend down upon her from the heavens. So, yeah, lots of great research that just made the writing of the book super easy. Fabulous. (laughs) That's incredible. Was
1: there anything that you were really fascinated by that didn't make it into the I book? I
0: probably could have written about twice as much about the House of Dior than I actually was able to write. So okay. it was really all, all of that detail okay. um, that I could have written twice as yeah. much about. Yeah. <laughs>
2: I love it. And I love that scene too, when the dress comes down and just you and I were talking before we started recording about the use of the word mannequin. So do you mind telling listeners about that?
0: Of course. So of course, nowadays we use the word mannequin to describe the plastic mannequins that you might see in the the windows of a, a department store, but Back in 1947 and in the, in the early days of couture, the mannequin was the model or the, the woman who wore the gowns at the showings that were held in the couturier salons. They weren't big fashion parades like we have nowadays at extravagant locations. They were all in the couture house. And the word model was used to describe the the gown or the piece of clothing that she was wearing because it was a model for the rest of the gowns to be made from so yes interesting how terminology changes over time
2: <laughs> yes I love it when at first I was like Man, okay, what?" and then as <laughs> it gets into the story they're a really important part of the story too um, even though they're not major characters they really are Absolutely. foundational so in addition to the espionage and the wartime crimes and all that there's a lot of the book is set with Dior and in Paris so let's talk about Paris a little bit if you don't mind it, it's so popular in fiction, and there's always new stories that are being found to tell about that whole magical city. What do you think is the allure of Paris?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, we, I have a, a group of historical fiction writers who are friends of mine, and we all joke about the fact that. All publishers want to do is put the Eiffel Tower on the front cover of your book because the Paris thing is so magical. (laughs) Guaranteed. (laughs) And I'm guilty. I've got a few Eiffel Towers on the covers of mine. Um, I mean, for me, I learnt the language as a child. So for me, my love of France came via the language and speaking the language, which is very handy when you're writing books set in France and needing to read archival materials that are only in French. But I think it's just that and certainly for me coming from australia which is a very new country we don't have the sort of classical whilst we have a very rich old culture indigenous culture we don't have that same European culture dating back for such a long period of time. We don't have the build. Our oldest building is pops 200 years old or something like that, whereas you can go to France, go to Paris in particular, and see buildings that have been there for hundreds of years, and they are exactly the same. They haven't been bulldozed over. They haven't been modernized. So as a historical researcher, you can walk the streets and it's the same as what alix Saint-Pierre would have seen. So I think that's part of the allure of it. It's um, kind of constant, unchanging nature and the way it's been mythologized over decades.
1: Natasha, this is one of those really fascinating sort of forgotten stories. So can you tell us why it's important to you to illuminate those in fiction?
0: I think it goes back to the point I was making before about that photograph of Dior surrounded by all of those women. The the injustice of the fact that the only name anyone remembers is the man's name, the name of the man on the awning, yet around him are all of these amazing women who, you know, his directories of sales of his assistant designer was a woman, his director of his studio, his director of his ateliers, his premieres, his main seamstresses were all women. And, why should they be forgotten? When really, if you were to pull out any of Dior's incredible creations, he's probably you know one twelfth of the genius of that dress. But there's eleven other women who all contributed their genius to that as well. And I would love to be able to honour them and to say to people there were other incredible people in history who are worth remembering. And here are some of their stories. And it's just lovely I think when readers say to me I read your book and then I went back and did more research about this person because I didn't yes. know about them and I was so fascinated and I love that the book can become a, a dialogue back to the past for people. Yes, that is such a great compliment
2: for sure. Okay, so I don't think I'm done asking you about the process a little bit because one of the things after hearing you talk about just writing the story from beginning to end and surprising yourself, how do you maintain such detail? Because one of the things that's probably very easy to, to mess up is like getting a detail wrong when you're putting all that on the page. How did you keep those in order? How do you know that this dress belongs here and this person was here?
0: Yes, it's a very good question and I've tried lots of different methods over the years to kind of manage the research and to make sure that when we're doing all the fact-checking that I've got all the facts in order so they can be easily checked and I've gone back to just simple handwriting because for me that's what works best. I've tried elaborate systems where I use the kind of notability apps um, with the Apple pens that you know record everything for you and I just end up getting myself ultra confused. I've tried index cards and my mind is not an index card mind. Maybe that goes back to the okay. not being able to plan a book. Uh, look, throw me an index card and I'm like no <laughs> I'm, I'm out of here. So for me it's really just making sure I'm making really making Detailed notes, and I tend to find for me, if I handwrite something, it fixes itself in my mind. Whereas if I type up research notes, they don't fix themselves in my mind as much. It's that, I guess, hand mind kind of connection. So, simply, you know, taking detailed notes of every book and every source that I'm reading, making sure I'm documenting page numbers and dates really thoroughly, and then somehow I can always go, okay. I remember writing something about that particular dress and I think it was in March. I'm going to go back and have a look at my kind of notes for March 1947. Oh, there it is. There's also a great piece of software called Eon Timeline, which I love um, to help me construct a timeline for my historical novels because time is always one of those things when you're writing history that runs away from you and getting those dates right. A reader will will always email you if you've got a date wrong. So Eon Timeline is what I swear by. I'm writing
1: that down.
2: I have heard that before. (laughs)
0: That's amazing. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. It, and it calculates pe- your character's ages at every month in your story time. So, if, so long as you put their birth date in at the start, it will tell you for any month over the time period you're writing how old they are, which I that love. That is incredible.
1: I, I really struggle with that even in contemporary timelines. In fact, I actually, I've only written one historical novel, but I feel like I was better at that because I had real dates to go
0: off of. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. I can at least go back. And say, you weren't making up the this time. This is the year they yeah. were
1: born, and this is the day that hurricane was, or whatever. You <laughs> know. I'm yep. so bad. I'm so yep. bad. Okay, <laughs> Natasha, you have a really fascinating story because I think I read that you wanted to be a writer even from your childhood, but that was not your first career. So, can you tell us a little bit about your path to publication?
0: Of course. So, yes, I did want to be a writer from the time I was a child. My mum has all of these little stories and books and poems that I wrote from the time I could actually do handwriting. But I'm from Perth in Australia. It's a really small capital city. And when I graduated from high school, there were no universities offering creative writing degrees. So, I didn't know how to be a writer. You know, if you wanted to be a a doctor you did a medical degree and then you got a job at a hospital and there was this really obvious pathway to follow yeah. but the only thing i knew about writers was that apparently they starved in garrets and that did not <laughs> sound like a very appealing proposition yeah. so that was not the pathway i wanted to follow <laughs> so i decided oh so i i didn't know what to study at university so i asked my dad for advice and he's an accountant no creative writer should ask an accounting father for a career advice, but he suggested, I know, (laughs) crazy. I had a scientist father, so I I feel you. Yeah. You Uh know where I'm going with this. Yeah. (laughs) So he suggested I do this Bachelor of Commerce, which I did because I saw that it had a marketing and public relations component to it and that had a writing element to it. So that led me to work in marketing for about 10 or 12 years. And then I had moved from one side of Australia to the other to follow my career. My husband had to move back to the other side to follow his career. He'd followed me one way. It was only fair I followed him the other way. Had to quit my amazing marketing job, which meant I was unemployed suddenly for the first time in my life. And I thought to myself, what if I didn't just rush back in and get another marketing job? What if I saw this as that moment you don't get very often in your life? where you can choose to do something different. And so I chose to go back to university as a mature ed student and do a creative writing course because they suddenly existed by this time. So I did, I wrote my first novel as my master's thesis and it kind of went from there, which overly simplifies the process, but that was really where it all began. (laughs) so cool. And very brave. I love when people,
1: you know, make those leaps. It is, it's scary to do something new and thank goodness you did it. Think of all the stories we would have missed. Yes.
2: <laughs> That's true. So, Natasha, can you give us any hints to what you're working on now?
0: I can. In fact, I even have a title <laughs> for the next book. So, the next book is called The Disappearance of Astrid Bricard and <laughs> is about the fashion. Battle! I know. On... Oh, good! Yay! <laughs> um, in 1973, there was a fashion battle at the Palace of Versailles in France. Five American designers versus five French couturiers. Everyone thought the French would take out the crown because France is the home of fashion. But the Americans won the night, and so the book hangs around the Battle of Versailles in 1973. Gosh, I got chills. I cannot wait. I...
1: I already want it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was super fun to write
1: 1970s. I was there. (laughs) Fantastic. Well, Natasha, thank you so much for joining us. We just were blown away by your beautiful nuanced writing. And we know that our listeners are going to want to read this book right away. So if people want to learn more about you and, and keep up with you a little more closely, can you share where they can find you online?
0: Absolutely. So you can find me at Natasha Lester author on both Instagram and Facebook. And my website is natashalester.com.au
2: Nice. This has been such a delight. Thank you, Natasha, so much.
0: Oh, thank you so much, both of you for taking the time to talk to me. It was fabulous. Lots of fun.
2: Yes. And thank you all for tuning in. This was such a treat as always. I feel so lucky that we get to do this and share it with you all. Thanks for tuning in. And remember, please tell a friend.